Coming to you from the Dietitians and Nutrition Support Dietetic Practice Group, this is the DNS Member Podcast, where we explore topics relevant to our field. From support line content to nutrition celebrity interviews and everything in between, this podcast is where DNS members can go behind the scenes and explore the driving forces behind cutting-edge nutrition support. I'm your host, Christina Rollins. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and thanks for listening to the DNS podcast. Our topic for today's discussion is developing nutrition support guidelines with registered dietitian nutritionist, Dr. Liam McKeever. Dr. McKeever is a clinical nutritional epidemiologist from the University of Illinois at Chicago, where he teaches courses in nutritional biochemistry, study design, and integrated pathophysiology. He recently completed a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania in the Penn Center for Nutrition Science and Medicine. He is also the director and editor-in-chief for the Aspen Clinical Guidelines. In this role, he serves as the methodologist for all Aspen Clinical Guidelines. His research interests center on uncovering the nuanced patient-specific consequences for nutrition support in critical illness. Dr. McKeever, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I wanted to start by asking you to tell us about your career path and what brought you to the role that you currently hold with Aspen. You know, um, yeah, so I really got involved with Aspen in my master's degree. So I was getting a master's of science in human nutrition, uh, and this was before my PhD, but I, during my time doing that, I started to just notice some kind of non-systematic aspects to how a lot of people were doing their search strategies. As I was trying to kind of teach myself search strategies, I just saw some holes. And so I created a paper that I thought kind of cleared some of that up, you know. And at the time, Carol Braunschweig was running the clinical guidelines and she wanted me to come on and operationalize my search techniques for the clinical guidelines. And so that sort of started my relationship with those guidelines. Um, and she actually ended up mentoring me through my uh, doctoral program as well. But uh, so I found myself at that point pretty much on every single guideline. And then my PhD was focused on epidemiology. And so it really sort of provided the perfect background to just sort of be steeping myself in study design and, and how that relates to guideline development. And so I, I I spent a lot of time just thinking and meditating on that and then went and did the grade training at New York University. And uh, eventually when Carol backed out of the guidelines, when she retired from it, um, I was in my postdoc and they made me interim editor-in-chief. And then uh, there was a, a nationwide search and I got an interview and, and managed to snag the position. <laughs> As clinical dietitians, which a large proportion of our membership do work at the bedside with nutrition support, we're the recipients of all of this great work, right? So we, you know, anticipate these guidelines being released, and then we work to really understand and apply that information to the care of our patients um, at the bedside. So take a step back, though, and walk us through the basic process and everything you're doing behind the scenes to develop these guidelines for us for us to use in our practice. 
you know, they're in the, for starters, I want to say they're in the, they're in the process of transition. So I am, I'm actually relatively new in this position. So I inherit, I inherited four guidelines that I'm finishing up and started the, the first new guideline about six months ago. So that new guideline is going to have very different methods than the other guidelines. Um, so I think I'll walk you through that. Uh, but you'll notice that some of the guidelines that come out prior to the head and neck cancer guideline are going to have maybe some of these pieces, but not all of them. But the, the first thing you do is you look for a panel of experts. So you need to find clinical experts. And this is actually very tricky because they need to be people that are not completely politically conflicted. And that's very hard because the type of people who become experts in their field are often on many different panels uh, where they're looking at many different aspects of nutrition. And so they can find themselves with very, very strong leanings and very strong relationships. And someone might get upset if you say X, Y, and Z. And you know, a, a guideline's a, a scientific document. So it's like, we need to put our political leanings to the, you know, to the, by the wayside when we step onto it. But so it's, it's a very tricky process of finding the right people. Um, but we, we put together this panel, we select a chair. <clears throat> and then um, that panel, one of the first things they do is they get together and they start trying to decide what sort of questions need to be answered. You know, uh, on some of the prior guidelines that was somewhat limited to what kind of questions we had data on and things like that. Now the practice is really just what questions do you need to know in order to do your job properly? Um, and so we, we put these questions together and we decide our inclusion criteria. How far back are we going to search? You know, we usually stop our searches at around 2001 because that's when insulin care changed so much. And we want to make sure that the findings of our guidelines apply to a current population of uh, people in the hospital. But once we get our inclusion criteria worked out and we get our questions written down, um, another thing that I've recently implemented is we're starting to publish a priori protocols. In fact, the head and neck protocol should be publishing uh, within the next couple of months. And the whole purpose for that is to allow uh, practicing clinicians the opportunity to look at what we're planning on doing and say, hey, you missed this question. Or, you know, if you don't include this or that kind of study, you know, I'm concerned about X, Y, or Z. And so, it's an opportunity for us to get a lot of feedback from people to make sure that all of the necessary stakeholders that are going to be using the guideline, basically all of you, um, have a hand in how that goes down. And so that's a very new and I believe a very important component of this. The other thing it does is it holds us accountable. So if the findings turn in a direction that doesn't really answer our question properly, or uh, if there's just kind of that pull to start changing the methods retrospectively, there is a measure of accountability where if we make a change, it'll be on us to really have to explain why we deviated from protocol. So once the comments come in, then we will integrate those comments. And wherever we consider a comment uh, an improvement to the guideline, we will do that. But it'll also, uh, even for the ones that maybe are a little, you know, maybe not something that we can actually integrate, it will let us know a bit of what kind of explaining we're gonna to have to do uh, as we publish the guideline. 
So after we integrate the comments as best we can, then a systematic search is performed. And usually that happens in multiple databases, uh, always PubMed Medline, usually Embase, uh, usually Cochrane, and then sometimes CINAHL, that's a nursing database. So it just kind of depends on where we think we're going to find the, uh, the data that we're looking for. And this usually calls thousands of citations. It's, there's usually a bit of sticker shock to the panel when they first see the number of citations, but um, <clears throat> we get through it. And the first thing we do is we calibrate everyone to make sure that everybody understands what you know, what sort of citation to include, what sort of citation to exclude. And so I do that in something called Rayan software, where I give them 25 citations, they all go through to see whether or not they would accept it at a screening stage. Uh, and then they, they also go through and look at a full text review to see what they would accept. And we don't move forward until we have at least 70% overall percent agreement in the, in the calibration test. And uh, you know, that is also fairly new. I've done it once before on the COVID-19 scoping review. And, you know, you'd be surprised how necessary it is. Like, I think our first round, we had maybe 50% agreement. So it was a very important thing moving forward to make sure people knew what to include, because otherwise you miss something. Once they, they meet their mark for that, then we move everything into the software called Covidence, which is citation tracking software. So that's where they'll be screening all of the titles, screening all of the abstracts, and then eventually screening all of the full text, and then also doing their data extraction. And so in Covidence, we set it up so that everything is done in duplicate. So it's never just up to one person. Two people have to agree, and if they don't agree, then a third person comes in to arbitrate their disagreement. So once we get ourselves through that process, then we know which studies we're going to include. And so we'll have a data extraction form, usually in Covidence. Sometimes I'll switch that over to different software if I need something more flexible. Uh, and they will extract all of the data that we're going to need in order to do uh, our statistics and in order to really consider the study in the guideline. Now, meanwhile, while that is happening, another new thing that I'm implementing is I've created a separate bias panel that I train and monitor closely. And this bias panel is basically um, made up of associate editors that I've hired uh, for the guideline. The idea here is that for years, we have been expecting clinicians to somehow just suddenly be experts in bias analysis, which is ridiculous. You can't just expect somebody to know how to do that. Um, so what we're doing is we're actually upgrading to the latest bias assessment tools, and we're taking that out of the hands of the clinical panel and putting it into the hands of a bias panel. And so under close supervision, uh, these two associate editors will go through and really do a close read and bias analysis on every single study. And then they'll do a little write-up at the end of each one to give us a sense of what we can reasonably glean from that data. And my hope is that that's going to really enrich uh, the discussion sections of our guidelines. You know, so many people get so used to just sort of reading the, the discussion and the conclusions and just taking a researcher's word for everything. And it's really helpful to have people take the time to go in and just do a deep rooting out of what are the pros and cons of how they did this study and, 
you know, how much do we trust this data? What would we have needed to see to make it better? Once that's all done, then we run summary statistics for any uh, studies where we have three or more conflatable studies. So if the studies are similar enough that we can combine it, then we do a summary statistic and a forest plot. And so that's those little plots that you're used to seeing in a guideline where there's a line and things move to the right or left of that line. Um, whenever there is insufficient evidence, we perform, uh, and this is also pretty new, um, we're gonna perform a, a modified Delphi technique to get systematic expert opinion. So in the past, what that has looked like is people have just kind of taken a vote and uh, decided, you know, and had conversations to figure out what the expert opinion recommendations should be. So in the absence of evidence, you need to just rely on expert opinion. And so usually that's been contained within the clinical panel and it's a vote. And, you know, that can be a problem. Sometimes if you have really big fish in the group, then a lot of the people who are not as far along in their career just sort of fall in line and it becomes the opinion of a few people. So one of the things that we're implementing is a modified Delphi technique. And what that looks like is first the whole group will get together and they will come up with some recommendations to kick around and they'll have conversations about the possible benefits and harms if they follow that recommendation. And the idea is to come up with something where the benefits outweigh the potential harms. Then based on that conversation, the chair of the guideline will go back and they will uh, write down their understanding of what those recommendations are supposed to be and they'll send it out to the group. And from here on out, it's now blinded. So the group will go through and they'll vote on you know, whether or not they agree with that recommendation. And if they don't agree, they'll provide comments about what they'd like to see changed. That then comes to me, I de-identify it and I send it to the chair and the chair has to reconcile it. Uh, the chair, he or she will go through and uh, they will basically try and change things to try and get to at least 70% agreement amongst the group. And so that will go back and forth until that 70% agreement is reached or exceeded. Then we don't just want the opinion of a small panel, we wanna validate it against a larger group of people. And so we're gonna have an external panel. I'd like it to be of about eight to 10 uh, experts in the field and we will send it out to them and that process will continue. They will provide you know, their agreement or disagreement and their comments. And based on that, that will get de-identified again and sent back to the chair and the chair will have to try and reconcile that and get them to a point where they have 70% or more agreement. So what that means is our expert opinion, which is usually the bulk of a guideline, will now be the expert opinion of a much larger body of people. And so I think while it's still opinion, it'll just be more rigorous. When we are creating our recommendations, whether they're evidence-based or otherwise, we use the grade process. And so the grade is a system that more than anything ensures transparency. You know, the goal of grade is not that if, you know, two panels did it, they'd come up with the same findings. It's really more about making it so that everybody can see exactly how you came to your conclusions. There's a clear line of logic. There is a, a documented system for how you made those decisions. And so that's, that's the grade system. And that, that works beautifully. It um, bases its, uh, 
it bases its decision making on how things like, you know, the study quality, how directly the studies answer the questions that we're asking, um, how the benefits and harms analysis plays into everything. Um, and it helps us determine just not only the quality of the, the studies to answer our question, but also the strength of the recommendation. How much, you know, how much do we think those benefits outweigh the harms? And then once that's all done, uh, then we begin writing. And this gets, uh, when we're done writing it, it gets sent through multiple rounds of review. So it goes to JPEN reviewers, but it also goes to the clinical practice committee. And it's actually the clinical practice committee that ultimately uh, recommends the guideline to the board. And then the board reviews it. And if it gets past them, then, uh, then it's done. <laughs> and we get to publish the guideline. What is the estimated time commitment of both the entire process, because as you explained, it's extremely complex. And then what's the commitment of those select individuals who are actually serving as chair or serving on the committee? It's not small. So, uh, you know, if when everybody's doing their job, I would say, I've, you know, I have tried to get it to a point where we don't have to meet as often. So what I do actually now is I, I use a website called Notion where I set up um, a page where we can collaborate. So for example, on the head and neck cancer guidelines, we're meeting now only about once a month and they, the rest of it then happens on this web page where they can click on the certain topic and leave each other messages and ask each other questions. And we all get like little alerts when that happens so that we can collaborate in our free time. And then when it is time to uh, meet, it's really just to nail down what we've already discussed. So that saves us a lot of lack of clarity and a lot of headache. Um, I say a guideline usually takes about two years is what it seems like. You always think you can get it done in like a year and really it ends up being closer to a couple of years. And um, it, it comes in fits and spurts. So when you are in the citation screening phase and the data extraction phase, I would say that's the most grueling part for the general clinical panel. That is the time when you have just probably several days of really tedious work ahead of you. And you're just trying to figure out where you're gonna fit that into your schedule. Once that is done, it really becomes more conversational. You know, when things are going right, the chair is usually the one that does the first draft of the guideline and everybody else, you know, and they do that because you're handing them lead author on it. Um, everybody else uh, is just, you know, kind of editing and providing advice and disagreeing with certain things. Um, but I would say after the screening phase, it's not too bad. You know, there's lots of time where you're not even thinking about the guideline, but someone is working on it. So either the chair, uh, it's a lot of work for me as an editor because you're, uh, you know, a lot of people just don't, haven't written guidelines before or um, just need to, it's, it's a very mentored research process in my, in my experience. Um, but I think two years and, and maybe a few months of it being a little uncomfortable. And how does the process you described compare to maybe other disciplines, um, whether in healthcare or outside of healthcare, when they're developing guidelines? So, you know, 
everybody's got their methods. It, it does differ from guideline to guideline. Uh, some of them use grade, others use similar systems that are maybe not grade, but their society put it together with similar purposes in mind. Um, some use the Delphi technique, but when they do it, they mostly don't validate it against an external panel. Uh, you know, we have all of these kind of boxes now to check because people have put these protocols together. So there are things people are used to seeing that I'm trying to now make sure show up on our guidelines. And it's funny, you know, if they're missing, people call you on it. But the things that are missing, if you really take a step back and ask yourself, okay, what's really missing here? Like, what does it really mean if this isn't in here? You know, it's, it's usually a pretty small issue. You know, I think um, some, of, you know, some of the more egregious issues are not surrounding making sure that all those boxes are checked. That's just sort of an easy way to kind of catch people at things. But some of the ones that are more egregious are a lot of people do the guidelines without a deep understanding of how the statistics work and uh, understanding some of the methodologic limitations of the studies themselves. So sometimes I see guidelines, for example, where they will do things like, let's say you're looking at the influence of nutrition on clinical outcomes in critical care. Uh, and maybe you wanna know about protein. What specifically do we need as far as protein in critical care nutrition uh, to improve clinical outcomes? Well, to really look at that, if you're gonna say that you're restricting to randomized controlled trials, those randomized controlled trials need to make their randomization groups varying levels of protein. That needs to be the thing they're randomizing to. And what I'll find is that a lot of people will say, well, we've got these you know, scanty little number of studies that did that, but we have all these other studies that you know, randomized to higher or lower enteral nutrition. And the higher enteral nutrition obviously got more protein. So let's throw them into the forest plot. And as soon as you do that, you have invalidated your summary statistic. As soon as you do that, whatever your finding is doesn't even matter anymore because you no longer know, is it protein that is causing that outcome that you're seeing? Or is it increased calories? Is it increased carbohydrates, increased fat, increased micronutrients? You've now created a bunch of co-interventions that completely invalidate the fact that you restricted to RCTs, they invalidate any finding you could have. And so I would say that is the biggest thing. It's like, give me a study that's missing a few check boxes, but at least did the statistics properly and, and I'll be happy, <laughs> you know? Um, but I would say, I would say uh, that really is probably the most egregious of them. Um, Another thing that happens is that guidelines will choose, you know, and, I, and they're trying to do their due diligence. No, nobody does this with any bad intent, but they'll do it uh, by including every single study design under the sun to answer their questions. You know, they look at people like us who mostly try and restrict to RCTs where possible and they think we're being too strict. And the problem is, is that that's, you know, that's okay to some extent if you understand whether or not those study designs can even answer your question. For, so for example, in critical care nutrition, the relationship between feeding and outcome is confounded by illness severity because P 
People who are more severely ill are both harder to feed and more likely to have negative outcomes. So, you know, we have ways that we try to adjust for that, but those ways leave a lot of residual confounding, uh, like Apache 2. It doesn't really directly get at it. It just, it kind of gets at things that are related to it. And so when you do that, you actually bias your estimate in a very particular direction. And you no longer know if what you're measuring is a product of nutrition on outcome or illness severity on outcome, and you can't separate them. And so what that means is an observational study in critical care nutrition is actually not a study design that can answer this question. It just can't, it's, you know, no one ever wants to hear it, but it's, it's the truth. And so one of the things that we are implementing, so we've been very strict in the past. One of the things I'm loosening it a little bit uh, as I come on into this position right now, it's just gonna come down to picking the right study designs that can answer the question. So if we can find RCTs, we're gonna ask for RCTs, you know? And if there are no RCTs, we're gonna call for RCTs. Um, but if there are no RCTs, the furthest we will expand is maybe to quasi-experimental designs, but high quality ones, ones with a true control group who can demonstrate similarity between the groups at baseline. Now, sometimes an RCT is ethically unfeasible, right? Like you just, you can't in good conscience randomize people to one thing or the other. And when that is the case, then uh, what we do is we will do quasi-experimental, similar, you know, uh, high quality quasi-experimental, but assuming there are no known confounders, we might expand as far as prospective cohort studies. But that's about as far as we go, you know. Um, we don't want to go below that because, you know, as soon as you go below that, the way that data is collected, you know, is usually not for the purpose of a study. And so, uh, we're giving medical advice to thousands of people. We need to know that our findings mean what we think they mean. So we're, we're very, very careful how we select study designs for our study. And until, until the head and neck cancer guidelines, it's mostly been just RCTs. And now we're expanding it, but we're being very careful how we do that. You're obviously very well-versed and invested in the guideline development. When you look at the other side of the coin, when you see clinicians who are receiving this information and then interpreting it, where do you see us go wrong? You know, where are we missing the mark on these guidelines or maybe misusing that information? Well, I mean, I don't know that it would be fair if I said that you were misusing the information because we're the ones providing the information. But I think here's one thing I would want you to know about any statistic that you're gonna see out in the literature. They're all population averages. Now you guys have been up and close with patients. You know that you know, patients respond differently to nutrition. Patients respond differently to medicine. Uh, you know, my own personal research has shown, you know, very preliminarily that there may be as many as 32 to 40% of patients that have a genetic makeup where the nutrition that we're giving them can cause increased oxidative stress. You know, there is a lot of need for precision nutrition and not a lot of options for implementing it. So I think the thing to always remember when you are reading these things is that you are looking at a population average, which is just not how nutrition works in any patient's body. And so when you see these things, 
don't ever use them as an excuse to let go of critical thought and clinical skill. You need to actually monitor what is this nutrition doing to people? Is their blood urea nitrogen, you know, raising? Are you having trouble controlling their blood glucose? Are they tolerating? A lot of the things that you already do, but don't ever feel pressured by a guideline to do something that is against what you are actively looking at. You know, I, I think I think that would be the one thing I would say about that. So I understand that Aspen will soon be releasing new critical care nutrition support guidelines. What were the research questions used to develop that document? Basically, we were looking at calorie interventions, protein intervention, EN versus PN, supplemental PN versus standard care, and then different lipid emulsions, specifically fish oil, on clinical outcomes. And on this guideline, we actually had decided not to redo a lot of the expert opinion guidelines that had come with the 2016 guideline, uh, mainly because we knew there really wasn't a lot more research on that. Um, this was one of the guidelines that I actually inherited. Uh, if we were to redo that now, I think we probably would have included those and we would have um, maybe even asked further questions. Uh, I think what we're going to do to remedy that is actually um, we're going to do a clinical recommendations paper that includes all of those questions plus whatever else people come up with that they think they need to know to do their job so that we can then use the Delphi technique and um, not limit ourselves to just things that have data on them. But uh, right now, those are our five questions that will be coming out um, hopefully short, shortly. We're in our, our third round of submissions. Yeah. That's exciting. And you, you mentioned a couple of times the head and neck guidelines. What else is in the works that we can expect to see in the near future? So um, on top of the critical care guidelines, I inherited an ERAS guideline. I inherited, um, let's see, there is a neonatal TPN guideline and there is a um, pediatric intestinal failure guideline that is in the works. And then we are currently putting together uh, at the bare bones beginnings of putting together updates for um, pediatric critical care. And uh, I'm likely thinking adult intestinal failure is coming down the pike soon. It's exciting. There's so much good information out there that it, it'll be nice to see them pull together in the guidelines. That's, that's really awesome. So for our listeners who, you know, are interested, not just in receiving the guidelines, but actually contributing, you know, maybe being a future author or a researcher, what advice would you give them to get started? Well, one of the best things you can do in general is start, um, is start volunteering at Aspen because it gets your name out there and people start to know who you are. However, with that said, if you are somebody who has extensive experience in a guideline that you hear is coming up, uh, you are certainly welcome to email me and let me know of your interest. Uh, you know, when I'm putting it together, I'll consider you, you know, one of the things, you know, so I, I have to be very careful who I pick. So I usually look at what kind of political affiliations they have. So, I mean, if you're employed by Nestle or Abbott, then probably, uh, probably that'll be too big of a conflict to, to make it in, into the guidelines, but there are a million other things you can be a part of at Aspen. 
Um, but I definitely, I, I got to tell you, it is hard to find people. You know, I, I really, really work hard to pull in good people. And I would love to hear people that really are just dying to be a part of a specific guideline. I think that's a, a great thing. So you can, you can email me at wmckee2 at uic.edu. And, um, and I, will, I will seriously consider including you. I just want to say thank you for taking time out of your schedule to talk with us. There, there's so much great work going on in the area of nutrition support. It's really nice to hear it from direct from the experts who are, who are living and breathing it. It's my pleasure, Christina. Thank you so much. Listeners, to be sure that you're taking full advantage of your DNS membership when you're formulating and answering your own nutrition support questions, please visit our resource library at dnsdpg.org. Until next time, I'm Christina Rollins. Thanks for listening.